listening to Miscarriage Stories with Arden Cartrett. Um, well, I'll begin my story from when I was really focused on trying to have a baby, which was shortly after I got married um, in November 2021. Um, I had a feeling, like I've heard some other women say too, that it would be difficult for me. Um, I got my period late as a teenager. It was always irregular. So after a little bit of that, I went on birth control and I had just, you know, been on birth control for like 10 years. And I feel like I had heard sometimes it's difficult once you come off. So I was like, as soon as we get married, I'm going to stop taking the pill and let's try. And sure enough, my period, you know, was nowhere to be found. Um, so after about like five months without a period, I called my OBGYN and luckily my primary care doctor was like able to order blood work for me before even going to her. Cause I told her what was going on too. So I got some blood work done. I show up to my OBGYN at this point, it's like six months without a period. And she just kind of like looks at all my blood work and it's like, okay. And hands me a card to a fertility clinic. She told me like my estrogen was super low, but you know, these guys are the best in the business. They'll get me pregnant somehow. So, you know, that was a really upsetting day even too, because I thought, okay, something isn't right, but I'm sure it'll be easy. I'd heard one of my friends like just took some Clomid and was fine. And so I thought she would just do that for me, but she sent me to her fertility clinic and um, we had our first consultation with them after also getting some more blood work done. And the doctor pretty much straight off the bat was like lean PCOS. Um, you know, you're the classic type of symptoms, like so many follicles on the ovaries, all of that stuff. Um, but was really reassuring that it's like super easy to fix quote unquote. Um, and mentioned, you know, probably giving me something to help me ovulate, trying an IUI and that we should be good. And then adds, you know, like just to be safe though, I don't want to put you through that. And then later down the road, we find out there's maybe something else wrong. So let's, you know, you're going to come in and do some other types of tests too. So I did like my HSG, the saline sonogram, thankfully, you know, all my tubes look good. Like everything was fine. And then the last bit was he recommended we do genetic testing, um, just to make sure we weren't carriers of anything. Um, and at first I was just like, we, we don't need that. Like we're young and we're healthy. Um, I'm Jewish, which like, it is pretty common if in the Jewish community to like do genetic testing, but my husband's not. So I was like, we don't need to, cause only I'm Jewish, whatever. Um, but he was like really pushy about it. So we did do it and it turned out we were both carriers for, a really rare genetic disorder called OCA, which is like a type of albinism. And most people are blind who have it. So now we're like already a few months also like in since my, like my first appointment with this fertility clinic. 
and I'm already eager to just start trying. And I was, I think, trying to like tell myself that this genetic disorder, you know, wasn't a big deal or whatever. And my husband and I had so many conversations about whether or not we should move forward with IVF, which is basically what was being recommended to us because if we went the IVF route, they can, you know, design a probe basically to like test the embryos that they don't have this genetic disorder. And, um, yeah, so there was like a lot of conversation around that to try and figure out if we wanted to do it. I was like really hesitant and reluctant. I feel like, you know, hearing IVF is just like, ah, so scary, like such a big deal. It's so hard. I don't want to do that. But ultimately with a lot of pressure from my doctor, honestly, um, we decided to do it so that we could try and have the healthiest baby possible. Um, so that took like several months for like to find a lab that like, you know, tests you and you have to like involve your parents to like give them some saliva so they can make this like genetic test. It's, you know, not just like the standard PGT testing. Um, so now we're in November of 2022. So November of last year, like finally good to go and start my first IVF cycle. And, um, I prep for my egg retrieval again, like if you have PCOS, all my IVF people out there, you know, it's like, oh, you're going to have so many eggs. It'll be great. But lo and behold, of course, not super great quality. So I had like 28 eggs retrieved, um, 12 made it to blast. And then only three were, um, euploid, um, and also didn't have that genetic disorder. And then weirdly, like one of them, the biopsy of the genetic test, like just didn't work, which my doctor was like, that's super rare. Only like 1% of people, it doesn't, the test doesn't work on. So already I feel like I'm in this like 1% group, but anyway, so whatever we were really like sad about those numbers, which I know is maybe not super considerate because some people don't get any. So tried to like be grateful, but it was kind of upsetting to only have three. Um, but nonetheless, we're like, okay, let's just try to transfer and we can always do another egg retrieval later. I'm like fairly young considering, um, I was 28 at the time. So we go ahead and prep to do a transfer of one of the, a frozen transfer of one of the embryos. And my lining was not so great. Had to have a canceled cycle, tried again. My lining was even worse that time. Um, and I'm feeling like really frustrated at this point. Like, it's just never gonna happen for me. I'm just never gonna be able to carry my own baby my body doesn't cooperate, you know, all of those things. So we tried a different protocol for my third cycle to try and transfer, um, where instead of like just taking estrogen, whatever, I don't need to get too much into the IVF details, but just try a different protocol. And this time it was working way better. Um, I also was doing acupuncture, whatever. I tried a few other things too, but this time it was working and I was so happy. Like I was just like, so grateful that I was even going to get a chance to transfer an embryo. Like I thought before the past couple of cycles, like it's just not going to happen for me. So now that I was like told everything's looking good, I was just so elated. 
And then you're like getting really close to the thought of like, wow, maybe I really will get pregnant. Maybe I really will have a baby. Um, after like all these months, all this hard work, forgot to add, I had a horrible recovery from my egg retrieval. So like, it really kind of scared me from just continuing this whole IVF thing. But anyway, um, so sure enough, we get a transfer date for the middle of February, um, this past year, 2023. And I was doing like all the things to try and make sure it was good. Like COVID was still a little bit around. So like literally was not seeing anybody just to try and make sure I was healthy. And we had success with that transfer, um, in the sense that it took, I was one of the people who said I was going to wait and not test at home. But after like a week of waiting, I did test at home and I know everyone has their feelings on this, but I tested and, you know, it was clearly like positive, but I, I wasn't sure if it was getting darker the next day. And so to hear the nurse, when she called me say like, you're pregnant and my levels were like 500 something like for the first beta test, I was like, holy crap, like it really actually worked. Like this isn't a joke. So I was just super excited. And I remember also having the thought that that beta number sounded like kind of high, like most women I would hear like are in the hundreds, maybe like 200s, but mine was like mid 500s. And then the next day was like 1300 or something, or, you know, two days after. So in my head, it was like twins because it's so high, but after some Googling, people were like, no, sometimes you just have high numbers. It doesn't mean twins. So, okay. Um, then we had our first ultrasound um, like a week later after all the beta tests. And it was just to confirm, you know, that it wasn't ectopic. They're like, you're not going to see heartbeat, like, you know, whatever, just to make sure it's not an ectopic pregnancy, which it wasn't. So that was also really, really like a big relief because in my head, I was convinced it would be because you're just kind of always expecting the worst, I think. Um, and after that first ultrasound, I remember thinking like, okay, now it's like maybe real. Like at first I thought I wasn't going to tell my parents until we heard the heartbeat. But after that appointment, I think I was just so excited. So we told like my parents and my husband's parents a little bit later, but um, then we had the next ultrasound when I was six and a half weeks and this was the appointment to confirm a heartbeat. Um, when we got there, I was super nervous. And right away, the ultra, the doctor who was doing the ultrasound was like kind of silent and like hmm, made like a little noise when she was getting, which anybody knows that's like the worst feeling ever. And I'm looking at the screen and it looked really different from the last time I saw when it was just basically a circle confirming that, you know, the embryo is there. And I was like, yeah, wait, this shape looks different. And she's like, no, that's normal actually. But do you see this thing over here? It looks like your embryo split. <laughs> so it was in fact twins. Um, and I was just like, oh my God, oh my God. And she like quickly though was like, however, look at this embryo, you know, they always say like baby A, baby B, if there's multiples. So baby A looks great. It's like measuring perfectly, super on track. I can see his heartbeat, but baby B 
doesn't look to be viable, which is always like, you know, very clinical word, whatever, doesn't look to be viable. And um, was like measuring basically like a week behind, no sight of a heartbeat at that point. So your mind is, I don't know, my mind was just like all over the place. Like what the heck is happening? And um, she pretty much accepted the expectation of like, look, this other baby B looks like it's it's not going to make it. Um, but, you know, baby A looks great. And we got to even hear his heartbeat, which I always thought was like a cheesy thing in movies that people cry at and whatever. But, oh, my gosh, I cried and I heard it. And um, I was never... I think like attached to the idea of twins, I guess, because I found out in this way, like not expecting it. And that right off the bat, like it doesn't look like one was going to make it. I kind of just shifted my focus on baby A, we'll call him. Um, and I was like, well, is this going to affect the other baby in any way or whatever? And she's like, it shouldn't, like it usually doesn't. Um, and I was like, well, what happens then? And she just said that like, basically the other baby gets so big because he keeps growing and the other embryo just kind of gets like pushed to the side or sometimes reabsorb whatever. And it's like, what an awful kind of thought. Um, so I left that appointment was like so weird at the end, you know, like the doctors and nurses then were like, well, congratulations. Like, sorry, it wasn't all good news. It was like, happy but sad it was just so bizarre and I know the car ride home I think my husband was able to really focus on just the one healthy baby and whatever but I was really anxious about it I was really scared like what this meant um and also like conflicted of like well it still is one of our you know our babies in there it just was a very bizarre time um a side kind of story, which like, I didn't, I wasn't sure if I really wanted to focus on or talk about, but a couple of days after that ultrasound appointment, I started developing like a really weird pain in my ribs, like so, so sharp to the point where like, I couldn't like lay down. I could barely move. Like it was so intense. And I was so scared that I went to the ER and they thought I like had a blood clot in my lungs and they had to do this whole workup on me, but they didn't find anything part of the workup though was like a chest cat scan and I was really hesitant to do that I was like I'm seven weeks pregnant or something like I don't want to do anything we called my fertility clinic we called a family friend doctor or the hospital doctor. everyone was just like no you do it it's going to be okay it's just your chest but that's like always in the back of my head of something because you know like you're not supposed to do those things really when you're pregnant but they were all telling me like it's totally fine and whatever, um, looking back, I wonder if that pain was just like anxiety forming in some way from having that really scary ultrasound appointment. But anyway, everything looked fine. And that pain went away after like a week. And the day after I went to the ER, um, I went to go get another ultrasound with my fertility clinic just to make sure like the baby was okay. And he was, he still was looking on track, had a heartbeat and everything. Um, and at that appointment too, it already been now like several days since the first ultrasound where I found out about the split. And 
baby B was actually measuring a little bit bigger. And I remember so clearly this doctor who was kind of curt, um, he was really just trying to get me to focus on baby A because he was still telling me like, baby B doesn't look great. Like just want you to set expectations, blah, blah, blah. But when he was like hovering over and like doing some measurements, I 100% saw a flicker of a heartbeat in baby B. Um, and I think he saw me see it. So he said to me, he's like, you know, there might be a heartbeat there, but it's not going to be strong. Like, I just want you to know whatever, but it's just, it was so weird again, but I was glad that, you know, baby A was still healthy. And this is super rare for apparently to do a single embryo transfer and it split. But for anybody who's maybe like had a similar thing, I know I felt a lot of guilt because on like the one hand I was, you know, sad and nervous. But on the other hand, I was like rooting in a way for baby B to just like stop growing and like for baby A to be healthy. So it's like a really weird spot to be in where you're like trying to just hope that one baby makes it and the other one kind of doesn't. I don't know, but I had a lot of guilt for that. Um, anyway, so I eventually feel like I'm able to kind of focus on the fact that I have a healthy baby and was really starting to like let my anxieties go and be happy to be pregnant, even amidst all the nausea and, you know, whatever that comes along. And at like eight weeks in one day, I go back to my fertility clinic. It's the last appointment to check on um, baby before they like discharge me to my regular OBGYN. And um, when we go for that appointment, again, baby looks good. This one confirmed like baby B did not have a heartbeat. He had stopped growing. And I'm saying he also, because we knew that we transferred a boy. Um, so, but she was like really assuring that baby A was like, so healthy, so great. We saw him like squiggle around a little bit and like the forming hands, like all these things. I was like, oh, again, this is like real. It's happening. Like I have a healthy baby. It's wonderful. And we were so happy to like make it to the OB and feel like it could be a regular pregnancy. So my next OB appointment was originally for like 10 weeks. And then I was like, I'm going to see if I can just come in a little earlier. Like peace of mind. So we scheduled for nine and a half weeks, like a few days earlier. Um, and again, nervous for the appointment. I think everybody can relate maybe to the nerves before an ultrasound, but really excited to also see the baby. And this was sadly not a great appointment and, um, go in and I um, get my ultrasound, transventional ultrasound. And at this point, I've had quite a few ultrasounds. Like I know what things look like. So like the second she scans and gets a clear image of the baby, I just said, where's his heartbeat? Like it just instantly, because again, very familiar. And it's sadly for people who know like a very different picture of like a still baby without a flicker. Um, 
so I just said again, like, where's his heartbeat? There's no heartbeat. And she's like, um, and like trying to like stall. Maybe she keeps moving stuff around, like trying to look. Um, and confirmed that there was no heartbeat. Um, and it was just such a shock. Like, I don't think you can like really process anything in that moment. Um, and I think, yeah, my husband too, just like is waiting for her to find it. I think he was just like thinking it was taking a long time, but, and then of course you get your options and I'm just like, what, what is happening? Like at one point I said to her, I was like, there was definitely no heartbeat, right? Like we, we shouldn't like double check, you know? And I guess I'm not the first person to say something like that. Cause immediately she's like, I can go get an ultrasound tech to, you know, come and do another ultrasound. We could do one tomorrow if you want, like whatever. But I just said, like, maybe we'll do one when I have to come back in because I ended up opting for a DNC. Um, her on again, like every doctor, I think probably has their preference and hers was a DNC to avoid the trauma of at home. As if a DNC like doesn't have trauma on its own, but very different for sure. So I just wanted like the quickest option. We went to the DNC. I was going to get it um, that Friday. My appointment that, on that day where we found out was a Wednesday. So thankfully I only had to like wait, you know, like a day and a half pretty much. But even that day and a half, like hearing people who have had to wait so long for their babies to pass in whichever way, like my heart breaks because you just feel like a walking graveyard. It's like an awful thought. Um, so yeah, so that day is just like, what the heck? Um, I still think right now, even I'm like, it's so hard to process and believe. Um, but then we went forward with the DNC on Friday, uh, that Friday, this is now only like a few weeks ago, actually. So that's why I said, I was like, I'm really in the thick of this, but um, had the DNC and also grateful. Like my doctor and the nurses are all very nice there and comforting. So at least I didn't have to deal with people who are super emotionally insensitive during that time. Um, and then I tried taking everything day by day, like people do. I don't think you can like compare anyone's stories. I'm sure you feel that way hearing so many, like no story is the same and everything. Um, but for me personally, when it's such a journey, like so many women who talk to you to just even get pregnant, it like feels just like, ugh. um, but again, no matter what, it's a horrible thing um, to happen to anybody. And I hate that so many women have to go through this. Um, and then I, I had a follow-up appointment just recently for my DNC. Um, and unfortunately, it looks like I still have something. Um, I actually couldn't confirm if it's like you know, products of conception, or if it's just like a clot of blood. And so she prescribed me um, misoprostol, misoprostol, however you pronounce it, um, to just try and pass it at home. 
And then I'm just like, cool, I get the best of both worlds. Like, no, it's not the same, obviously, as passing or delivering your actual baby, but just now I get both. Um, and then I was another rare percent of people who I had an allergic reaction to the medication. So like, and again, I think this is like super rare. Most women do not have this, but I had an allergic reaction or like my hands just got super red and puffy and itchy and my throat started getting scratchy in my chest and like I have food allergies. So I kind of can know when I'm like, this isn't the type of response to happen. And I threw up the medication. I took some Benadryl just to like make sure my, you know, throat didn't close up or something. And like, you know, obviously call my doctor who told me to take the Benadryl. Um, but it didn't work. I didn't pass anything. I didn't pass any blood clot. I barely bled even from taking it. So currently I am going to have to start looking into, it seems like, uh, a surgery, like a hysteroscopy or something, um, to remove it. Um, and that's kind of where my story ends right now. No real resolution. Um, obviously we were hoping to like have me heal as soon as possible, like get in a good headspace and try again with another transfer. I think having now even just a little bit of complication from the DNC, uh, first off is just like, you know, kind of adding crap onto crap and feels like I'm was starting to even just try and see like some hope and pick things up. And now I'm like having to start all over again a little bit. But I am, um, I'm hopeful that I can just get this taken care of and transfer when the time is right and when my body is right and take it one step at a time. Oh, Nikki, it's, it's so hard. You mentioned, you know, whenever it's a journey to get to pregnancy, the feeling of then experiencing a loss of that pregnancy. And I think that this is also, you know, everybody feels like, oh, now we have to start over and go through those first weeks again. But there is an added element, especially in an IVF pregnancy, because there's so much money that goes into it. There's so much time. You, you know, you had your whole lining uh, debacle of like, is it okay for me to transfer? Is it not? Yeah. And figuring out those things. Um, and it is really difficult having PCOS because even though on an ultrasound, you do see a lot of follicles. It's like you said, the quality, you don't know until they're outside your body and inspected. And that, that just feels, it all feels kind of hopeless and difficult. Um, so I can definitely um, empathize so much with knowing how much goes into that one chance at a pregnancy and then having to go through that again is that it's terrible. It's devastating. Yeah. Yeah. Um, a hundred percent to all of that, like IVF, there's so much money, so much time, so much of it is also just like out of your control and you're kind of at the hands of your clinic and their schedule and when they say and whatever, and you know, you're going in every other day to like, check if you're good. It's like so, so consuming. Um, that yeah, if I'm being honest, like I grieve 
grieved and I'm grieving hard for the babies that I won't get to meet. And in a way, like also for myself, like it was not easy. And I feel sad for me a little bit that I have to like try and do it again. Of course, uh, you have every right. And I I give you permission here for everybody to hear that you can feel very sorry for yourself. Um, I I like to say that we are victims to pregnancy loss, just like we're victims to infertility, where it's not like we are causing these things. It's not something we are choosing. It's not something that we are taking on. And for it to happen to us, it's very untimely. And it's not something that we had in our plan, right? Like, of course, we didn't think that Um, I don't know if you relate to the feeling of whenever I went through my infertility aspect of my journey, I thought, oh, well, because I had infertility first, I'm not going to experience loss. People don't experience both. And I was kind of naive, even though I had already worked through some of the naivety of like becoming a, a, a patient at a fertility clinic. And so I feel like that was a really big lesson for me of like, oh, so you can go through infertility, do treatment, get pregnant and still experience loss. I I thought that was such a wild concept at the time. Yeah. Yeah. Well, because I mean, silly to bring up like what's fair and what's not, but in a way you're like, well, that's not fair. Like they already had that. Like, you know, you can't then also throw loss onto it, but uh, yeah, I think I did. And especially, you know, having it be my first transfer that did work and stick I thought like, I'm going to be one of these like lucky women, you know, it took me a while to get here, had the lining troubles, all these obstacles, but it's all working out now. Like my first transfer worked and it stuck. So I, yeah, I definitely had that a little bit too. Um, There are so many risks to um, not even, I don't know if risks is the right word, but like an IVF pregnancy is different in a lot of aspects and this is something I've learned now as a miscarriage doula but like IVF pregnancies um, there's like a couple of studies done on placentas in those pregnancies and they're like more sticky is like the word that they use sometimes and try to explain Mm -hmm. it to where people actually have a lot of products of conception like stuck even after full-term birth um, where DNCs Mm -hmm. are needed because the placenta of an embryo from an IVF pregnancy is like thought to be um, harder to detach from the uterine wall, which is really interesting. Mm-hmm. And a lot of doctors aren't really aware of that. So it's not treated as such, maybe with a DNC or more careful um, mm-hmm. attention. So I do see a lot of people with IVF pregnancies having the um, hysteroscopy. I can never say the word correctly, but yeah, but I see a lot of them having that for that reason. Yeah, that's interesting. I hadn't even heard of that or come across that study, even though I'm such a Googler, but um I wonder, as you were saying, I was like, maybe it's because, you know, some IVF pregnancies, you're taking progesterone and like, yeah, that's all pretty much for the placenta. Who knows? I'm not a doctor, but um, that's interesting. I hope that the women you speak to have success after their. I do see, I see a lot of it. No, I, I, I do see a lot of success. Um, and it's, you know, it's so hard with any of this because even though things are in a controllable environment in some aspects it is so out of your control um and I think that's also a misconception about IVF is people think they go into it and it's just like a guarantee because everything is you know planned so well by doctors but there are so many aspects that cannot be predicted or planned um and that's usually where we feel like out of control 
that yeah. Is. Yeah. Um, I, I think that's very true. And the fact that, you know, you're doing all of these things in hopes of controlling, but not to be cliche, it's just like, nothing's a guarantee. And that's something else I'm just like super started to realize and like latch onto is just nothing's really a guarantee. Even when you do all of the things to try and, you know, not everything is controllable. Like you said, as much as we try to, um, yeah. I did want to ask you, cause you mentioned, um, being Jewish. I grew up in a Jewish family and we're very stereotypical, like, um, like, uh, what's the word? I, now I lost it where it's like, um, you don't want to jinx anything. Uh, mm. Yes. I know I see a lot. Um, there's a really great organization. Uh, I was supposed to have a baby who is, uh, she is, it's Amy that runs it. And she's a Jewish woman who talks a lot about like uh, cultural differences with infertility and loss because you had to involve your parents in the IVF process to make the probe. Did you feel support? Was there kind of a, a jinx aspect or like a, oh, you know, maybe like, um, I don't know, was there a cultural aspect of being Jewish and going to a fertility clinic? Because I see a lot of people don't have that support in going to fertility clinics. So they mm -hmm. usually will keep it a secret or they don't go because with religion, sometimes that can be um, really difficult. So I'd love to hear if being Jewish and going to the fertility clinic, if you had any um, experiences there. Yeah. Um, well, very grateful that my parents were super supportive. Um, I think it was something like I had to learn also like to communicate my boundaries. Cause frankly, I'm probably more superstitious than my parents in terms of like anything like that. Um, where like, I didn't want, you know, toxic positivity of like, everything's going to work out and don't worry, you know, you're totally going to have a baby from this. Like, I just didn't really want that. And I think probably as a mother, you know, my mom just wants to reassure me that things are going to be okay. So almost like the opposite of what you were saying and in, in yeah. that I had to like set those boundaries. I did also, even though we had to include them, you know, for the genetic testing and everything, um, I also kind of set the boundary of just like, you know, I'll give you updates when there's something that I want to update you on. But I think a lot of people feel this probably with IVF, like regardless of, you know, religion and culture and superstition is that like, it's such a moving target and it can feel like exhausting to just like constantly update people on like, oh, now my appointments pushed to this date or now we have to try this way. And so I just didn't want to have to deal with that. So I also set the boundary of like wanting to communicate um, when we had an update and things like that. And I'll share what I wanted to share. Um, but long-winded answer of, yeah, I'm grateful. My parents were definitely really supportive while also understanding that nothing's a guarantee. And maybe, you know, they didn't want to jinx too. I don't when once I actually told them I was pregnant. Um, but I probably carried more of the superstition. <laughs> yeah, that's, and you know, times are, are changing to where, you know, we're all kind of growing out of those, um, those stereotypes a lot. Like I know my mom's family was Orthodox Jewish and they were very like, they didn't even like talk about people who were pregnant until the baby came. Like they didn't want to like acknowledge anything until they knew that there would be a baby in their arms. And it's so interesting and my mom is like the type where um, 
like whenever I was pregnant with my second living son, if I even mentioned like, I'm afraid my baby is dead. She was like, Arden, don't even put that in the universe. And I'm like, putting it in the universe is not going to make it true because withholding it from the universe didn't stop it from happening to me before. Um, So I feel, I feel like my, I was always kind of combating that. And so um, I think it's great that you set that boundary early on of like, Hey, I don't want any of this toxic positivity. I don't want you to tell me to be positive. I just want you to, you know, take on feeling and support me. I think that that's amazing that you said that. Yeah. Um, I'll note with the help of a therapist for sure. <laughs> yes. <laughs> but um, I don't know people who are maybe like a little woo woo or believe in signs or whatever, but I had a really kind of like your story just um, jogged my memory. A really weird thing happened that I'm actually surprised I didn't mention it as I was rambling on my story, but the morning that I woke up for my ultrasound when I was six and a half weeks. So the appointment where we found out the embryo had split and it was, you know, twin boys. Um, I have a wedding band, which I'm not wearing right now. I have a wedding band with um, half of it has like really, really, really teeny tiny little diamond stones. And um, maybe like 12 of them uh, were half of the band. And I woke up and two of the stones were missing like two stones right next to each other were off of my band and I've had this band you know for a long time supposedly like from a good jeweler whatever and it was just I was so surprised I was like what the heck like two stones fell out and you know they're so tiny you're never going to find them um you could like swallow them so I was just like well that's kind of annoying like whatever maybe I'll get it fixed or something And then of course, a few hours later is when we have this appointment where we find out about the twins and that one wasn't viable. And I just, when we got into the car on the ride home and I was like crying and I was, I said to my husband, like, what if this is a sign? What if this is a sign that we're going to lose both of the babies? And he immediately, he almost like laughed because he just is so not a sign person. Um, But I said the same story to my mom later and she was like, God forbid, you know, like, don't even say that. Like, don't, you know, so that was the moment where I guess of like, don't put that out there type of thing. Um, but I do think about that. I like, I can't wear that ring right now. I think about maybe one day I'll like maybe take it to a jeweler and have it shaped into a heart. And that could be like my symbol to remember them. But, um, yeah, it was just such a bizarro thing to happen. Um, but yeah, also the people not talking. I remember learning as a kid, my mom told me that some people don't, you don't say congrats or in Judaism, mazel tov. Like you don't say that to a person when they're pregnant um, yeah. because you might jinx it. You only wait until after. Yeah. Born. And a lot of Jewish families, they don't even get a nursery ready until the mom has given birth. And then the rest of the family will go to the house and put it all together. That's oh my how goodness. my mom's family was whenever I was born. Um, and it's just so, it's so crazy to think of like it being, you know, that fearful of jinxing something. Yeah. Um, but I, I, my mom is definitely not like that now, but it's interesting. You know, I, I see a lot of the, the cultural aspect of like the positivity, like my grandma used to say, like, bad things don't happen to good people. And it's like, grandma, (laughs) bad things happen to good people every day. Um, and so it's, it's interesting. And so I, I always, um, I always kind of love to talk about that because I know that my, my experiences in a Jewish family, um, around like fertility and stuff was so interesting. 
So it's, it's nice to hear though, that you had from the beginning, your doctor was so proactive and was like, let's do all this testing. Um, let's do the genetic testing because that is kind of rare. And I feel like that's a sign of a really good doctor. Um, and you know, then kind of moving forward into seeing a fertility specialist and not, you know, not waiting. I, I think that that, um, I'm just glad that they were really supportive of that. Yeah, that's true. Honestly, I never really gave that credit, I guess, to them of just kind of like, let's do everything now. And of course, looking back, I'm glad. Um, but yeah, I am fortunate that they kind of thought to like cover all of our bases. Um, well, and you can be fortunate that they covered the bases, but also be like, it freaking sucks that I have <laughs> this genetic aspect, I have to do IVF. And then I lost my, my first IVF transferred baby. So while there are things to obviously be like, oh, I'm glad that it was done this way. It still royally sucks. Yeah. A hundred percent. That's yeah. Grateful, but it's still all shitty. Excuse my French. <laughs> no French is welcome. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Oh, Nikki, thank you so much for sharing your story. And I know um, before we started recording, you said that you were afraid to share it while you were in the thick of it, but I'm really glad that you did because I know that although it feels really lonely, there are people out there that are listening to this and they're like, that sounds you know, similar to this part of my story and I can relate to this and it makes one person feel less alone. I always say that it's worth it. Um, and I, I hope that we can have you back for happy updates in the future. You're welcome back anytime. Thanks. I really, really hope to do that. And yeah, I hope this story in some way maybe comforted someone. It's a weird feeling, but I know from having listened to your podcast, like you don't want to be comforted by hearing other people's painful stories, but it somehow can really be helpful. So yeah, maybe this helped someone. Yeah, I know it did for sure. 